Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, my guest is the fabulously named Nadia Komanet. She's the head of sales of Lemlist. Now, for those of you who are my age, you may remember that her namesake, after whom I believe Nadia is named, was the first gymnast to ever get perfect 10s. And she was spectacular. And I think you're in for a bit of a treat because I think uh, Nadia is on a similar path in terms of her sales management. I'm going to let her introduce herself because she's got a really interesting story moving from Serbia into software sales. So Nadia, welcome. Thank you so much, Marcus. It's it's really a pleasure to be here and talking to you. Uh, We've chatted last week and you've kind of given me some ideas that I've never thought of it in in that direction, in that way. So really excited for this chat. Uh, And (laughs) to to quickly introduce myself. So uh, as I said, I'm uh, Nadia. I'm head of sales right now at Landlist. Uh, I've been uh, working in sales for the last six years. I've actually formed and led sales outbound teams, and I've done outbound by myself as well. I'm very passionate about the mental health of my sales teams and the teams that I'm coaching and managing. And uh, the story kind of starts back in my university when I was studying journalism in uh, Serbia, actually, where, um, you know, in Serbia, like the ecosystem of startups is not that huge. So uh, for me, like my directions that I could have taken at that point were, you know, typical professions such as doctor, being a lawyer, being a a financial analyst, etc. So jobs like uh, content marketeer or sales jobs didn't even exist in Serbia. And even today, they're not that developed. However, I always felt in myself that I'm uh, meant to do something not that standard. And uh, I've kind of went into the software sales very randomly. I've had an opportunity to work with a San Francisco startup. And ever since then, I kind of went from this background where that it's very rigid, I would say, in, in some way when it comes to the career choices into something completely different, uh, where I didn't have like a lot of people around me to actually talk to, get experiences with, network, et cetera. So I kind of went with a zero network, zero uh, previous experience into this amazing world of uh, world of software sales where I had to kind of uh, figure it out by myself. Interesting. Okay, so I, I'm really curious because I suspect that unless my generation of leaders and managers understand the journey that millennials and Gen Zs are going through, it's going to be very difficult to attract them. And once you've attracted them, then difficult to keep them. In in your experience of managing, presumably younger teams than than me, what are the things that seem to matter most to attract talent to your team? For me, and I can speak from my experience as well in terms of what I was looking for when I was looking for a job back then. For me, at uh, you know, younger generations right now, they're faced with so many options on what they can do. Like they know there is a world out there of choices. However, how do you figure out what it is the choice that you want to take, and how do you know where you will be good at, and that you would succeed, and that that you would enjoy? And I think the role of a manager is if you're hiring a team and you're not looking for X amount of experience, is actually identifying within the candidates and within the talent what are their soft skills in the first place and where they can be developed to actually fit in a position within your company. Giving the opportunity to younger generations to express themselves openly and really identifying what it is where they can excel 
in which area is where I think just giving the shot to younger generations, I think is important and then coaching them and helping them succeed along the way. And in your experience, how much impact does experience of selling a particular product or selling within a specific sector have on the ultimate performance and results of the person you hire? Minimum. I would say it does make an impact. It gets easier, at least when it comes to the onboarding process, if it's the same industry, et cetera, it's always easier, obviously, and they have kind of a a sense of what they should be doing. But the things that are most important are really soft skills that are already within the person. And if, if it's there, it's there. If it's not, it's not. So it's easier to model somebody who already has the foundations into something that you want them to become instead of taking experience and just going along with that. So in terms of candidate design, because mm-hmm. I'm really curious about that, what are the soft skills and soft qualities that you are looking for that you see replicated in your top performers? Obviously, it depends on the specific role and the specific um, area of work that you're in. But for my sales teams, the most important soft skill that I'm looking for is really the persistence, the grit, the empathy uh, when talking to people. And uh, when it comes to kind of hard skills, obviously, copywriting is one of the most important elements for any job, uh, for any candidate that I hire eventually. Interesting. Okay. So that's a that's a mix of hard practical skills and soft skills, but empathy, listening, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Okay. so tell me something. Have you seen any significant shift in terms of what part used to pass for great in sales and now passes for great in sales? And what are those differences that we as, as older managers need to be aware of? For sure. I think there has been a huge, actually, difference, 360 shift when it comes to the salespeople today and before. Previously, you were looking for a candidate that is going to be very pushy, very aggressive, that is able to close the deal very fast. There is going to be able to kind of get the trust immediately and just close it. Today, it's completely the opposite. So today, what we're looking for is somebody who is able to listen more than able to speak. Somebody who is able to uh, identify really the needs and the kind of get into the psychology of a person that they're talking to. And eventually, obviously not, it doesn't, previously I would say that aggressive salespeople were the ones who were winning and were top performers. Today, one of my best top performers is actually a very introverted person that is very shy, but is able to really get the other side, to listen to the other side and to implement that into their talk with them. And if anyone has introverts on their team, read a book by Susan Cain, C-A-I-N, called, and I've forgotten the name. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's all about introverts. And I'll remember it by the time we finish. <laughs> I'll add it to the notes. But um, yeah, the, the, uh, her book on introverts is really very interesting. And I've seen this as well, where people who are really good at creating a sense of safety and uh, creating an environment where people feel safer having them along the buying journey than not having them. And that's a really, really rare quality. And if you find it, snap it up. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. And um, so if we look at the kind of issues that you as a manager have been particularly focused on around mental health, What are the signals that maybe 
a manager needs to consider intervening because one of their team is struggling or they may be suffering from mental health issues? When uh, answering this question, I tend to kind of immediately go with, uh, you know, if the KPIs are not there, if you had a top performer that right now is not performing, that is a signal for you to kind of take a listen, take a look at what's happening. However, on from experience for the last two years, I believe that metrics will not cut it. Like just looking at the work effects of the work that your teammates are doing. It's a symptom. It's a symptom, exactly. Um, that's why I strongly believe right now in like very, very regular one-on-ones because each person, especially in the last two years, is going through such a horrible time, I would say for everybody right now, that uh, only on these one-on-ones, you can actually go into what is happening in their own lives. And a lot of people are actually good at hiding it and not bringing it into work. I know I'm that person, like you would not be able to spot anything on me while I'm working. However, I am facing some issues. So like when that happens, I think the one-on-ones are the only chance for you where you can actually get this information. Obviously, the um, symptoms are something that will help you identify if there is an issue in the first place. But uh, anytime that you see a lack of motivation, maybe a lack something that they were passionate about in the past, but they're not reacting to now is something that could obviously trigger you to, to take an action. Interesting. Okay. Um, certainly uh, w- one of my favorite managers uh, that I've ever worked with, Silke Ahrens, um, she ended up paying for her entire team to go through a breathing and a mindfulness and meditation and a gratitude process. What's really interesting is just how powerful that is uh, in terms of galvanizing the team to work more collaboratively together and also the uh, sense of camaraderie that it creates. Because I don't think we can really underestimate the value and the power of engagement. Mm -hmm. And I'm really curious as a manager what you do in order to drive engagement and enhance that so that the experience for the individual employee is better. I would say that one one thing that helps me, obviously, like I'm, I don't want to present myself as somebody who's figured out management and knows how to do everything properly. This is still something that I'm trying to to wrap my head around. But what has been helping me a lot in the past is really being vulnerable and transparent in my own actions that I'm doing and taking daily with the team. Previously, I've had, I've used to have like managers that were very, very close thinking that, you know, you would think of them as some gods that know it all, that uh, are not making any mistakes, et cetera, but actually taking an approach where you're showing your own flaws, you're showing your own mistakes, and you're showing how you're addressing those mistakes, I think is something that helps out a lot uh, when it comes to the team bonding with you and feeling the trust is there. So they can actually talk, talk openly about the issues that they're facing as well. This has been one of the key parts for me as well. But uh, on the other hand, I think uh, just making them feel safe, as you said, to actually express their emotions, their struggles, their pains, and really creating this safe place where they can make mistakes and that will be okay as long as they learn from it, I think is the essential part of any management. Interesting. So how do you earn the trust and when does it begin? It all goes back to kind of leading by the example. So uh, if you're the person that has been able to kind of make some successes in the past and they you've been doing what they're currently doing, it kind of creates immediately some credibility in your end. But again, that is not something where you can just only rely on that. 
Again, being in the trenches day to day helps a lot because you know that what you're talking about, you're experimenting and testing by yourself as well. And additionally, obviously, admitting when you made a mistake, I think is the, the important part as well, because they know they can trust you. If you're just kind of putting it under the rug and pretending it never happened and that you're this uh uh, you know, person that doesn't make a mistake, I think, is the where you really don't earn the trust of your team and letting them actually take the, make their own decisions and act in them, I think is important. It's really interesting because there is a fine balance between being over-friendly and being a manager. And what I see many managers struggle with because of the journey that got them there is that they were a top producer. They got tapped on the shoulder when their previous boss left or got fired and they had no runway. So then they do what was done to them. They try their very best. I, I fundamentally believe managers are doing their best, but around half are accidental managers. They sort of <laughs> fell into it by accident. It wasn't part of a career plan. And so they, they go in unprepared. And I'm really interested in how, as a new manager, you were able to be that vulnerable. No, because you're only six years in sales. I mean, that, 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 so you can't have been in management for that long. Mm. You probably got three, four years in that. And a lot of that was experimentation and guesswork and tripping up and getting bruises. So I'm really curious how you learned to be vulnerable early in, so early in your career. I would say that I was actually one of those accidental managers in the beginning of my career. <laughs> I went through the exactly same thing that you're saying right now. I was in marketing before I joined sales. So I kind of like had this huge jump immediately into the sales role. And very fast after that, I have uh, I was given to form a team and hire the sales team, scale the sales team and coach them. Not having a huge experience in sales myself. So it was not... For, it's it's potentially something that I wouldn't take on today, knowing what I know now. Uh, however, I kind of managed to swim <laughs> in those waters. Uh, and I would say that uh, what I've learned and what you've asked me right now comes from the mistakes that I have made. Uh, so I wasn't aware this was the essential part until it was until I saw the mistakes and I saw the effects it had that were negative back back in the days. So I did learn from the trial and error. And um, for any young manager or any person that is right now thinking into jump, taking a jump into these new management positions, especially if you're a top performer, just ask yourself, is this something first that you want? And second of all, is this something where you think you would excel in? Because skill sets for managers are not the same as the skill sets for being a top performer. And the third, find immediately a mentor or a source within your network where you can actually learn before you make a mistake. Because the mistakes will be there, that's for sure, but you can avoid some of them as a lot of people went through the same ones before you did. Yeah, I mean, we screw up on a pretty, uh, yeah, pretty <laughs> predictable trajectory and frequently as well, yeah. Okay, um, so I am curious about something here. So you go through the... Uh, the process of being an, an outbound salesperson, you move into management, you make some mistakes, you trip up along the way, you learn. I'm really curious about whether or not you've come into friction with your older generation leaders, or have you only worked in companies with relatively young founders? <clears throat> I definitely did come 
into friction with a couple of uh, my previous managers. Yeah. Right now I'm, I'm working with a very young French dude. He was 30 years old. So I think we're more or less in the same, uh, same age frame. However, previously I definitely did run into the issues simply because we were talking here about sales that were thought of in a very different way, very old school type of way where we were kind of being very aggressive and we were trying to just like, you know, stay on the targets. And that was all that mattered. All of this talk about mental health, about keeping the team sane, about uh, making them feel like they belong, et cetera, they didn't exist. So that was the first clash where we that we ran into. And me being a very young woman in sales, I didn't feel, and that was a mistake on my end, I didn't feel the right to actually speak up and fight for what I thought was actually right. So that was the first mistake that I actually made as manager. And I kind of went along with what I was given and that I was ordered to do in this case. And it didn't work out. Very interesting. Okay. So you've come from a marketing background Mm -hmm. and you're now, you've been in sales and you've then moved into management. I'm really curious about coming from a marketing background, how data-driven are you in your selling approach? That's a great question. I would say I'm not data-driven. That's like what marketing has actually taught me is to be very creative and not to stick to numbers. Although obviously sales and marketing both are data-driven areas. However, for me, I think I was always like thinking very outside of the box, very creative, really trying to kind of come up with the new approaches. So for me, I was always kind of a going with the flow of the buyer and their buying journey and adjusting my sales pitch and my sales approach to that. I'm okay. not really fond of being very structured in everything that I do because I think that's where you limit yourself. Okay. So let's d- dig into your process because I do like that a lot. Um, let's dig into your process of how you get to understand the buyer's journey as a complete outsider. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you literally want me to walk you through my sales journey? I'd love you to. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. this is one of the things that I see almost no one doing well. So if you can spill your beans Perfect. on that, it'd be brilliant. Perfect. So let, let me kind of give you a, an idea of what I talk to, like whenever I hire a new person on my team and how I personally do sales at Lamlist. So we would take one example. So one prospect that is a perfect example of our audience. And just one company and one decision maker within that company. And then I would give them zero tools, zero tech stack to kind of work with. Just tell them basically, okay, how would you approach this person if you had zero technology available? And how would you communicate with them? How would you build a relationship? What would be your first step, second step, third step? Obviously, they all start with research and they start exploring the persona, exploring the company, getting information. And at that point, they realize the importance of the research in the first place. Once they've gathered the research, then they start start thinking how they would approach this person without being too pushy, without being too salesy, and how they would just build a relationship with obviously the fact that they're not looking to book a meeting on the first email that they sent to them. What they would do is they would like, okay, maybe I would first send them a connection request on LinkedIn. Then maybe I would follow up with them after a couple of days with a message, maybe watch their webinar, maybe listen to their podcast and everything that they do and the way that they tell it to me. Then I would tell them, okay, now create a sequence out of that and leave the parts that you're going to be putting as a personalization or relevance to be a custom variable and everything else that you see repeating 
and you tend to repeat with a lot, a lot of different customers, you will create it as a template. Run it, see how it goes. If there is something that you should edit, change, etc., you can always repolish it afterwards. But uh, I think the most important part is kind of getting that mindset that you're talking to the one person and building relationship with them. And everything else you kind of leave to you know, wing it, everybody has their own style and everybody has their type of communication. And that's what I don't like to mess with a lot. Okay, that's interesting. And uh, I'm curious, and again, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but uh, what proportion of your team that has made it past ramp up is consistently hitting quota? So right now we've had a remodeling of the team a couple of months ago. So actually three months ago. So right now I will not take a look at this okay. last couple of months, but the previous year and in the previous year, we all of the team members were hitting the quota. In the beginning, it was hard because we were switching from inbound to outbound. So it's been a lot of changes. But again, I think the moment when they start to feel what is working, it just keeps on like it's just again scaling it and it's just adding more fuel to the fire. Very interesting. Okay. So um, tell me this then, the relationship that you have with marketing Mm -hmm. and with customer success and with product development and management and senior management, I'm really curious how you're managing to balance and navigate all of that so that you're all working towards common purpose. I would say that uh, in Atlamless, at least, Sales, marketing, and support are literally as a one team. I think everything that we are doing right now is really so intertwined that we cannot really work without each other. One thing that helps us a lot at Lamlist when it comes to marketing and sales collaboration is that sales does a lot of marketing as well. So all of us have um, personal brands. We're all posting content on LinkedIn. We're all, as you can see, like I'm talking on podcasts, webinars, etc. For, for us, content creation is the fuel of the company itself and the fuel for our growth. So sales team gets marketing because we are doing some parts of their job as well. And marketing gets sales because they're posting content on sales daily. So they need to be very close to us as well. And being a full cycle sales, so meaning that we are doing everything from prospecting to closing the deal. Once we close it, we don't have really bandwidth to keep up and do account management for our clients. So that's when the customer supports comes in and really needs to be connected to us to be able to actually manage that client afterwards. Interesting. Okay. It sounds to me like not only is there a lot of coordination and uh, crossover in terms of the function, I'm curious, do you coordinate primary and secondary messaging? Actually, marketing does that, I would say. Okay. And so you all produce content to a specific theme, but with your own individual perspective. Exactly, exactly. So because, but again, we are in the industry where our software itself, like our platform, helps automate sales process. Meaning that us in sales, we are the ones creating those campaigns that we're afterwards posting content on. So we need to be, we're kind of all aligned in the industry itself and the content that we are producing. So in that case, Obviously, sales will take their own angle, marketing they will take their own angle, but again, we're very connected in the in the topic itself. Interesting. So has this changed the way you compensate so that you now compensate for anyone who con- contributes to the success of an account, or is it still very heavily biased towards new business and sales? 
definitely uh, it does affect. So you asked also like how do we work towards the common goal? The compensation itself in Lamlis when it comes to the bonus structure is formed in a way that we are all getting the same bonuses based on where we are when it comes to our goal in the company. So our goal for this year is to hit 20 million. Based on that, every single department, depending on where we are towards that goal, is going to get the same revenue and the same bonus, uh, no matter if they're in sport, sales, marketing, uh, design, etc. because at the end, every single person in the company makes an impact and they should be rewarded for that as well. So have you taken away sales commission uh, exclusively? Very interesting, right. So I've been looking for a company that's done this. So tell me more about this then. So is it based on company milestones being hit or is it based on customer milestones being hit as well? Just company. Oh, but that's actually a good uh, idea. (laughs) That that focuses us on, the the, the reason I ask is because I think that that's where comp should be focused because then it focuses all of us on making the customer successful, which means they come back because that's why they paid us. No no one pays us because they want our software. They pay us because they want the results to improve. So I would say that we have kind of intertwined these two in terms of, yes, everything is based on the company milestones. However, are we are uh, we're using a system called OKRs. Yep. So our OKRs are also based on the customer's success. So for example, uh, in both sales and uh, customer support, lifetime value is one of the key metrics that we're looking for out of the customers, their successes, et cetera. So this is something that we really take a look at. However, it's it's been it's actually a good idea to try to actually I will I will come back to you when we when we figure out something around that well, as well. One, one of the things I've been thinking about is how do you compensate when the customer achieves a specific milestone and then when they achieve certain levels of consumption or adoption and the third renewal. I'm big big fan of the third annual renewal because it means that you've actually turned up they didn't cancel you after the last one uh, mm-hmm. when your terms and conditions locked them in um, you know, uh, aggressively and they didn't cancel the third time because by now they're using it because that consumption piece I think is so important and uh, what we forget one of the things that really fascinates me is that we forget that after the customer has bought they've now assumed all the risk and Justin Michael says something really profound which is that if if you're the only one pushing for a deal to close, imagine the pushback when you're no longer in control and the customer is after they bought. And so one of the really important aspects that I don't see anywhere near enough of is maintaining and developing engagement with users, administrators, the financial buyer, long after the sale is made and making sure that you're there, you know, going deep and wide, deepening the relationship. And I'm not seeing anywhere near enough of that happening. I completely agree with you. Huge part of Lemless growth in the first place. So I'm not sure if we mentioned it before, but we managed to grow from zero to 10 million in ARR in annual recurring revenue in uh, less than four years bootstrapped. Uh, And the way that we've done it is literally just by being customer centric. If there is one thing that I would uh, say was the reason for our success was that. uh, And when I say that, I know a lot of companies are saying like, you know, being customer centric is important, et cetera. But a lot of things that we've done would anybody on the outside would tell us you're crazy. What the hell are you doing? Like, it doesn't make sense. But we did it because it's made sense for our customers. One of them was actually last year. 
my sales team stopped doing outbound for ourselves. So we stopped generating revenue for our company and we started actually building sequences and doing outbound for our clients. The goal for that was, first of all, to help the clients that we saw were struggling and actually help them out, coach them and explain how they would be able to uh, run outbound properly. But the bigger goal was actually taking that those examples and turning them into a super actionable content on our YouTube channel where we would be able to educate clients on how to do it properly and do it in a way that we're not just talking you know, about ourselves and showing our product, which is selling by itself and showing our sequences that are super successful, but actually taking the clients that are struggling and showing how to figure it out. Because in sales, the only thing that you do, you're trying to figure it out what works and it's different for every industry and different company. It sounds to me like every job description in the company has a window to the customer. Would that be fair? For sure. For sure. Okay. So what kind of insights and contribution are you getting from non-customer facing functions in terms of enhancing that experience? So for example, oh, that's that's actually a great question because for us, the only the only thing that we are still uh, trying to let's say overcome is the sales and developers relationship, obviously, because tech part of the job and obviously people who are right now working in our dev team, they don't come from sales or marketing experience. So just trying to kind of uh, explain what it is needed is obviously like something that we need to oftentimes talk about, but we are getting the product feedback. So, which is great for us, obviously in sales and marketing, uh, what it is that can be improved, what is lacking, et cetera. So this is very essential for us in the first place. And yeah, honestly, every other, uh, uh, every other position is very customer facing as well. So we are not, we don't have a lot of, except from developers, there is not a, not a lot of people that are not uh, in uh, customer facing roles. So how do you communicate internally? Do you have uh, an intranet? Do you have newsletters? Do you get together? I'm really curious about how you guys collaborate because this, uh, this is very much the model of businesses that I see moving forward. What I'm really excited is when businesses like that start clubbing together and forming ecosystems. So that's where we're going to head next. But so- how do you communicate? One of the most important aspects for us in, in Lamlist is uh, the virtual office that we have built. It's uh, literally a virtual office where we can all collaborate together, talk to each other, etc. And even though I'm remote, for example, I can come to any of my developers and have a chat with them, etc. So having this opportunity to actually talk to anybody in the company is essential. And the culture itself pushes us to talk to everybody in the company. So it's not really that we are, you know, closed in our own lines and we're just talking to salespeople. We're talking to everybody. And uh, weekly meetings that we have as heads off are uh, essential because we then know what what needs to be addressed, where we need to communicate as a team uh, better, et cetera. Product and sales calls as well. So just kind of having this Regular conversation, I think, is important. And then we had internal newsletter until recently. But again, a lot of things are happening. So we're just kind of... And we are all aware of what's happening because we're not a huge company, on the other hand. So right now it's 40 employees. It's still easier to talk internally than it is when you have like 2,000 employees in a company. As we grow, we will see how we will structure it a bit better. Really interesting. Okay. It, it sounds to me like it's a very high challenge, high support kind of culture. Exactly. exactly. Um, 
Talk to me about how you manage conflict and friction in a way that leaves people's dignity intact. (laughs) (laughs) To be quite fair, we didn't have like a lot of conflicts within Lamless simply because I think that's that comes when you actually form a culture of people that are very really like-minded. So even if there is an issue that is to be solved and we have different opinions, opinions, we talk it out. And we didn't have like huge issues where anybody kind of felt, you know, in a poor situation and they felt felt misjudged or um, whatever. But at the end, uh, I think just having this culture where you can talk about anything and nobody will tell you like, okay, that's stupid what you're saying or like, no, you're not making any sense. Being really just open to listen. And if the idea is not that good, I mean, so so what? We're going to move on to the next one, I think, was was crucial. Uh, in conflicts in the first place, just having this no judgment uh, approach, I think, is the is the essential. Again, do you feel that that is something that is easier at a generational level for millennials and Gen Zs than us? Certainly the culture that I grew up in in the 80s and started working in the 90s was very much the sort of Gordon Gecko, greed is good, Margaret Thatcher, get on your bike, go out and find work, be self-sufficient. But I think that era of self-sufficiency has, um, it it comes with a a sharp sting in the tail because what it doesn't do is it doesn't leverage humanity's magic dust. The reason we're the dominant species on the planet, or at least we think we are, is our ability to cooperate and to pass knowledge on and to synthesize. But increasingly, well, over the last 40 years in particular, as I've entered the world of work, I've seen us go through really fierce and vicious competition and reluctant coexistence. Even with channel partners, you know, I, I still see it today where they're seen as the competition, where they're seen as the sort of a ginger-haired, bastard, ugly stepdaughter of direct sales. And then this sort of this collaboration, but even then it's at arm's length. You don't give them the really good stuff. You keep the magic dust. You don't want them to get too big for the, their boots. And I think there's a, there, we're reaching a point where this is the border where the real innovation will happen, where we can start creating environments where co-creation, co-elevation, and real cooperation. I mean, you're working towards common purpose. You share values. You share and multiply resources by working together, playing to your strengths. And I'm really excited by that, but I'm curious how you know, you're seeing the way uh, the market is going to move and how you're looking at your affiliation with uh, you know, adjacent uh, vendors. I personally, uh, I'm kind of, I have a mixed feelings about what you said right now in terms of, um, I do agree with a lot of what you've said. However, I'm not sure if the shift from being this competitive, money-driven, aggressive culture into the collaborative one was due to only generational difference and uh, millennials and Gen Z coming into the picture because I do believe and I can see it on my generation and with the younger folks as well that we are competitive in nature and the ego and this competitiveness is there it's there is no difference in terms of like the type of uh, characters that we see today and before I think what has changed is the uh, C-level actually and managers actually making these shifts and realizing that what used to work 
simply doesn't work anymore. And there is ways to do and actually conduct work better than previously. And we have a saying in Serbia, I'm not sure if this is the same saying in English, but literal translation will go, the fish always stinks from the head. Yeah, so, uh, fish rots from the head down. Okay, perfect. So basically, I would say that in the beginning, like, depending on the founders and the CEO on the C-level itself, that's how the company and the culture will be. And if the founders are well aware of the type of management and the culture that they need to create in the company and they water the proper values and the proper collaboration rather than competition, I think that's how it will actually impact the company itself. Okay. That's, uh, again, I agree. I'm very, very curious about something else as well, which is, Going back to your point when you said you've got no technology, I'm I'm really curious about the minimum technology stack that a salesperson really needs today to do an excellent job and what they need to cut out because it's just creating friction or noise. So I would tell you that right now, we would be able to do the same work that we are currently doing in Lamlist with the $180 tech stack month. Go on. We are not using some extremely extravagant tools. We don't need them. We're, we need a sequencing tool, which is Lemlist. So we combine a multi-channel outreach that we're doing LinkedIn, email, and calls. We do it in one place with one tool. We are using something to find email addresses and phone numbers. And we're using our, um, obviously, LinkedIn because we need to find prospects, but that's it. Everything else is just adding more on top of what you already have, which is nice if you want to be efficient. Obviously, a lot of tools can help you speed up the process. But again, it's not something that you need if you want to be successful in sales. So I've grown up in an era where people were obsessed about the CRM, but the reality is the majority of the information in it, 8%, I believe, the study I read a while back, is total dross. It's useless. So how do you create a single source of the truth that actually helps salespeople and they want to use? For, <laughs> <laughs> I, I realize I'm asking you to create a unicorn here. But... No, of course, of course not. I mean, it depends really on the process that you have in place in the company and how the level of complicity complexity that you need to have in the organization. For us, it's very simple. We're using Lumlist, and that's where we track our reportings for our sales efforts. Uh, and we're using Pipedrive as a CRM. However, even if we didn't have Pipedrive, we would be able to make it work, although it would be very hard to have visibility into where we are when it comes to the pipeline. But again, I think the reporting in Lamlist itself is quite enough for me. And at the end, we're just looking at the revenue that we're bringing in Everything else is just more modifications and um, testing it out. Excellent. Okay, we're, we're coming up to time, but I am curious in terms of what, what is it you most love about management? What I most love is uh, when I see somebody found their, with my help and with my coaching or my talks with them, when they found something when they found their life purpose, I would say. So like, I know we are all looking for like, wh where am I good at? Where I, what I'm going to do? What is, what drives me, et cetera. And even if it's maybe my teammates realizing that they're not for sales, but they're for marketing or something else, having this, you know, sense that I've helped out somebody is what I love the most and having this impact on their lives 
when it's positive, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> what was your best mistake as a manager? My biggest mistake? First, no, best. Um, best. Best mistake. The one that you learned the most from. Um, maybe okay. I have I have too many examples. I'm trying to pick one. One of them would definitely be being too close with them. So like not finding this balance between being a friend and a manager. I think that affected me a lot personally as well, and also my teammates. Those were the mistakes that kind of had the biggest pain. I would say in, in my team. Um, what did you learn from it? What I've learned is that. Uh, being too close with, like you, you need to draw, draw a line where where you're be, being a friend and when when you're being a manager and how much into the, their personal lives you want to go into and sharing your own personal life as well. Interesting. Okay, so moving forward, what's next for you? What what what's your next role? My next role. Yeah. So what I do enjoy a lot about my current work is um, content creation and personal brand uh, and building out the personal brand. I might go into the, I don't know, X years from now, because I'm not planning to leave Lemlist anytime soon, is to go into more content creation type of position. I'm kind of missing a bit of a marketing that I used to do back in the days. I'm uh, enjoying it right now while I'm doing what I'm doing currently. So this content creation and education actually of the of the salespeople out there is what really helps me. Like it lights my spark. So that's something that I would uh, maybe go into a bit more. Well, it sounds like you're expanding. So presumably you're recruiting. What's the one activity that uh, a candidate who would love to get onto your team should involve themselves in? Is it some form of outreach, prospecting call to you, LinkedIn? What what would be a really good evidence that they're a, a good fit? Great question. Uh, so as I'm looking for uh, outreach specialists, definitely a very unique outreach to me and getting my attention to actually get them on an interview would be a best way, whether it's LinkedIn, email, I mean, unique outreach methods are there. So whatever works for you, I'm um, I'm just interested to see how you would reach out to a prospect. And if this is your job in, in place, again, uh, let's see how you do. Excellent. So Nadia, what books, videos, podcasts would you recommend people read, watch, listen to? I would actually recommend, and I know this might be biased, but I would definitely recommend the Bootstrap Stories podcast on Spotify. It's an amazing podcast that uh, my CEO actually just launched a couple of, uh, I think, a month ago. We've had uh, Tim Solo from uh, Akrabs actually join. It's an amazing podcast, very actionable. And I'm learning from it every single day, even though, though I've been here for a long time. I thought that there is nothing else to learn from my CEO, but <laughs> I'm mistaken. Uh, so this is the one podcast that I'm currently obsessed with and I really, really would recommend to listen to. Excellent. I've got a number of guests that might be uh, very good for him uh, from the Scale Ups and Hypergrowth podcast. Um, so it was all early stage or scale-up founders and sales leaders. So folks like Tom Shodorf, who took Splunk from 10 million to 1.3 billion uh, in five years, that sort of stuff. Okay, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, I would say the best guess is LinkedIn, my LinkedIn profile, because I'm very active there. I'm always like checking my messages as well. Or uh, obviously, um, if anybody's interested in Lemlist, website, support chat, myself on LinkedIn, it's really any way that kind of works for you. But again, LinkedIn uh, is the best, uh, best option. And do you have a partner program? 
Yes, we do. We do have, we partner with the marketing agencies that are doing outbound for uh, for their clients, uh, sales team, uh, and uh, in some cases, also marketing teams. Interesting. Okay. Nadia, coming at you, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating. Likewise, it was really a pleasure. And thank you so much for so many book recommendations that I'm right now very eager to read. <laughs> oh, and the book by Susan Kane is called Quiet. I told you I'd remember Quiet. it in the end. <laughs> so, I'm writing it down. <laughs> I'd love to have you back. And there are a couple of panels that I'd like to bring you on where I want to look at the uh, transition, the generational transition, but also about women in tech. Because I think one of the big issues that's really under developed is the importance of having diverse teams, because the more diverse the eyes on the problem, the more elegant and effective and sustainable the solution. And I'd love to bring you in on that. I love that for sure. Count me in. Excellent. Nadia, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. It was really a pleasure. So this is Marcus Kapke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, then please like, comment, share, tag somebody who could benefit from it, maybe a new manager who's really struggling to find their way and uh, reach out to Nadia and see if she might be kind enough to mentor you. Not that I'm uh, filling her pipeline with uh, problems that she doesn't really want. In the meantime, if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. And as ever, if you'd like to be a guest or know someone who would be, then drop me a line. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.